Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to Criminological Matters, the criminology podcast series from LawPod with myself, Elizabeth Agnew, and Anne-Marie McElinden. Just to briefly introduce my research... I recently completed my PhD here in the law school, researching harmful sexual behaviours among young people, primarily focusing on cyberbullying and sexting. And I am due to start an ESRC postdoc fellowship in the school, which draws on a dominant theme within my PhD, that being young people's understanding of consent, primarily within a digital context. My name is Anne-Marie McElinden. I'm a professor of law and criminal justice in the School of Law at Queen's and I've been researching in the area of sexual offending involving children for about 20 years and in the last few years that has focused particularly rather than just adult child forms of abuse, peer-to-peer forms of abuse. Anne-Marie, as you said, you've been researching harmful sexual behaviour for a long time, nearly over 20 years and have a wealth of knowledge in this area but your primary focus has primarily been adult-based forms of harmful sexual behaviour. What made you shift focus into looking at young people who engage in abusive or exploitative behaviours? Well, I think, Elizabeth, out of the last project I did, which was on grooming, which, as you say, primarily concentrated on adult child forms of grooming and abuse, it emerged that peer-to-peer forms of abuse was one of the biggest growth areas for frontline professionals, and in particular in relation to online forms. So that said to me, this was a particular area that hadn't really been highly researched and in-depth, and it was an area in need of further exploration. So I got into that area because of that over the last three years, and my more recent research, including my most recent monograph was on peer-to-peer forms of abuse. Given the complex nature of harmful sexual behaviour, what do you see as some of the main problems with how harmful harmful sexual behaviour is conceptualised? Well, I think that's an important question. And one of the difficulties in this area is that statistics around peer-to-peer abuse actually vary quite considerably. So, for example, among studies, the stats range of between 30 and 50% of all known cases of child sexual abuse are committed by peers. Quite a high figure, which probably the public would be surprised at. But it's Again, a very wide variation in the figures between 30 and 50%. I think some of the factors that are relevant in terms of the complexity of this area and why it's so difficult to pinpoint the nature of abuse in this area, which may account for the variances in statistics among studies. There are a few important things here. I think one is the notion of gender. Gender is highly complex. The cultural perceptions around gender also feed into professional perceptions. So, for example, traditionally young females are seen as being victims or at risk of abuse, whereas conversely young males are seen as being the perpetrator or more risky. It's much more nuanced and complex than that. A further factor is how we understand and define the terms victim and perpetrator. So in peer-to-peer abuse in particular, and in relation to complex forms of peer abuse, such as within organisations or care homes, the victim and offender sort of definition may actually overlap. It refers to what I have previously termed a continuum of offending. 
So to give you an example, you may have a case within a school where a young person may be both a victim at the hands of another child, but equally be perpetrating power over a further child. So that's one of the difficulties. This distinction between victim and perpetrator is, is much more complex in peer forms of abuse. And I think the last difficulty of the complexities in this area is around labelling, particularly in relation to the law and how we define children and young people. So while we generally say under 18, maybe in tandem with the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, there are diverse age barriers in terms of how the law recognises the capacity of children. So, for example, the age at which you can vote, drink, buy alcohol, get married, some of the difficulties around the different thresholds for sexual consent, which maybe we'll pick up in a while, they all vary greatly. So there's complexity within the law as well in terms of the capacity of children. So I think all of that contributes to the the difficulties in this area in terms of pinning down what exactly we mean by harm and peer abuse. Yes, and there are obviously a wide range of harmful sexual behaviours that young people can engage in. And tapping in a bit on your monograph, within both an on and offline context, what were some of the main types of abusive or exploitative behaviours young people were participating in? So as you recognise there, Elizabeth, it can take place, peer abuse can take place both online and offline. So some of the most common forms are sibling abuse or interfamilial abuse more widely defined, such as between cousins or in the wider family circle. We have organisational forms such as within residential care homes or within schools. The group context actually makes it particularly complex because of the peer-to-peer dynamics. We have peer relationships more broadly. Uh, Other research, for example, has shown that there's a high incidence of domestic violence among peer relationships. We also have the party culture or gang culture, again, the organisational notion. And finally, we have online forms such as sexting and cyberbullying, which is where your own research would come in. And although peer abuse has been recognised as a professional concern for some time, as you noted earlier in your research, within the last few years especially, harmful sexual behaviour among young people has become a pressing issue within child protection discourses. What would you note then as some of the key factors which underpin this contemporary emergence of harmful sexual behaviour? Well, I think the main thing to say before we draw out the factors is that there's been a cultural over and premature sexualisation of contemporary childhood. I think it's fair to say that the cultural norms and messages around sex and sexuality have shifted. And there are a number of factors that have underpinned that. I think one of the main ones is the the media and a culture of sex, which proliferates through celebrity culture, advertising culture. If you think of things like Celebrity Big Brother and Love Island, if you think of video, gaming, music industries, all of that, all of that promotes subliminal messages about sex, about how young males and females should behave. And it's very dyadic as well in terms of on the one side, there's how females should behave as, as a sexually attractive but also innocent, and the young male is more of an aggressor. So that so that is a, is a key one. A further one, I think, is new media and changing modes of social communication. So everything now is virtual. It's done via mobile phone and social media. And I think the significance of that is it can blur the boundaries between what other writers have talked about as your real self and your virtual self, which means then that acts as a disinhibitor. So children and young people can do things online, even adults, that you wouldn't do in face-to-face contexts. 
So that's a, a very important one. Following on from that, we also have changes in dating and courting practices. So no longer do we have this clear divide, for example, between romantic and non-romantic relationships. We have this crossover. So, for example, this notion of friends with benefits. And again, the modes of communication come in. There are things like the use of emoji, emojis or emoticons, three-letter abbreviations. And again, the significance of that is to try and remove adults from the conversation where children and young people can communicate openly without adult censorship, if you like, or supervision. A huge one, I think, that most professionals would also agree is pornography. The easy easy availability and access to pornography, which is now only two or three clicks away on a smartphone. And professionals would tell you that the access to pornography is it lies at the heart of most cases of peer-to-peer abuse. Children have to get this information from somewhere. And again, the significance of pornography is it promotes the subliminal messages about sex. And I think finally, the last one I would draw out or highlight is the existence of gang or party culture. And I know a number of policy studies have highlighted this. And the idea here is that you have the use of alcohol or drugs as disinhibitors. There's this kind of passing round that can sometimes happen in the party house or, or boyfriend model. And again, the significance of that is that if you are see yourself as just having a good time, you're not likely to recognise yourself as being a victim. So in other words, to, to sum all that up, the, the upshot of all those factors is the normative boundaries around peer-based sexual behaviour are changing and this creates uh, confusion, if you like, around the boundaries as to what is normal and what is more harmful behaviour. It's become very blurred. So following on from that then, the significance of the normalisation of harmful sexual behaviour, this culture of confusion, if you like, or the difficulties of separating out what I would term normal from risky, from more harmful behaviour. I know yourself, Elizabeth, you talk about it in terms of the difference between explorative or exploitative behaviour. That culture of confusion as to where that boundary lies creates difficulties both for professionals and young people around, again, this dividing line between harm and non-harmful behaviour. Yes, definitely. There's a real tension within contemporary debates when it comes to identifying harmful sexual behaviour and behaviour which is potentially more explorative in nature. And central um, to this debate are tensions surrounding youth sexual agency, consent and criminalisation. And we'll um, tease those out a little bit more as, as we continue our conversation Really, when it comes to differentiating between exploration and exploitation, we need to look beyond a risk and harm-based framework, which you've tapped in on, Anne-Marie. We must recognise that young people can engage in sexual behaviours which should not be regulated by the criminal justice system. And there are four principal factors which I think need to be considered. Um, The first is motive and intention. So motive and intention are crucial when analysing sexual behaviours among young people, but it's not black and white. There are some cases which can be more easily identified than others and there can be extremely complex cases. Um, For example, motive and intention can change um, and what can become, what can start off as consensual can easily become then more exploitative in nature. For example, uh, young couple um, within a consensual relationship may send images on to each other. And I say consensual in inverted commas because if they're under 18 legally, they can't do this. Um, When that relationship maybe breaks down, these images then can be passed on. And that's where the motive and intention changes. And consent within that is really, really crucial. The next thing is the normalisation of youth culture. 
Um, there are certain sexual behaviours that have become normalised, as you tapped in on Amri as well. And young people then may not see themselves as a victim. So as you mentioned, this, this party culture with the introduction of narcotics, etc., um, it can make it extremely difficult then for a young person to identify as a victim. This also relates then to gender myths and stereotypes and pressures to conform to particular gender roles. So femininity is meant to be about being passive, about being submissive. Masculinity is about being dominant and aggressive. So these very prevalent gendered stereotypes are influencing how young people see themselves. So again, whether they identify themselves as a victim or not. The next key factor would be the age of the parties involved. As we noted earlier, there are a variety of age limits, um, particularly enshrined within law. So you have your minimum age of criminal responsibility at 10, you have your age of sexual consent at 16, and then you have the age at which a young person can legally send a sexual image, um, which is 18, which comes under indecent images of children legislation. So young people wrongly think they have full sexual agency at 16 and this was something that actually came out of my PhD research was that confusion around when young people actually had full sexual agency. Now there's a big problem with this confusion because young people's behaviour then can be identified as harmful because they were unaware for example of the legislative constraints around sending sexual images and in a way then the law is outdated and we're risking putting a young person, um, placing a young person on a criminal sex offenders register. Um, and the lifelong implications of that for a young person are extremely severe. Now, while professionals do have a certain amount of discretion, and it is important to note that, that in these cases, it's not automatic, um, especially now with Outcome 21, etc., which gives the police a discretionary power to divert cases away from the public prosecution service. Um, it's commonly understood um, when looking at these cases and their discretionary power, age is a big factor and anything more than two years is seen as, as concerning. Um, and the fourth factor which links into um, this age issue is whilst young people can be similar in age, there still can be huge disparities um, in physical strength, in knowledge um, and in power. And therefore, looking at the child's emotional and physical stage of development is also really, really important. And again, it feeds into that party culture that we talked about before, where young people can be of a similar age, but maybe with the introduction of drugs, etc., the power imbalance is completely then off. Um, and that needs to be to be looked at. Um, and they're really the four main factors that I would consider as crucial and really important for professionals to look at and consider when differentiating between harmful sexual behaviour and looking at whether certain sexual behaviour was exploration or exploitation. And within that, really stressing the importance of recognising that sexual behaviours among young people are a continuum, as Hackett noted um, in his um, work, that young people's sexual behaviour must um, be looked at as a continuum. And you can't put children's behaviour into discrete categories. And again, that tip taps into what you said, Amri, around continuum of offending. So it's really important that all of that is considered and it is complex, but all of those issues must be taken into consideration when looking at getting that balance right between exploration and exploitation. So what you're saying is then, Elizabeth, that there are a number of contextual factors here which are important for professionals, those working in child protection or welfare in terms of making this distinction between harmful behaviour or that which is more normal 
But what about the knock-on impact then of, of that for children and young people themselves? How do they in practice actually negotiate some of these challenging behaviours and differentiate in their heads between something that's potentially harmful or risky and something that's more benign? Yes, it's really difficult for young people to negotiate a sexual identity, especially online. And as you mentioned previously, you know, the easy availability of pornography, it really is shaping young people's understanding of sex and intimate relationships and relationships in general. And this intertwined with the persistent and very prevalent gender stereotypes and myths are placing unrealistic pressures on our young people to conform to a particular gender role and ideal. And indeed, often these messages are conflicting. You know, we are telling girls to be sexy, but not too sexy. Um, We're telling them to be innocent, but not too innocent, or else boys will lose interest. Um, We're telling boys to be macho, to be dominant, but don't show any emotion. Emotion is for girls. Um, So these really harmful messages are leaving young people vulnerable to harmful sexual behaviours. And these confusing social rules and norms then are making regulating a sexual identity almost impossible for a young person. So really, we need to challenge this normative nature of sexism. And in my research and um, in your research also, Amory, girls in particular felt that their sexuality was being tightly placed. And again, we've seen this in other research, such as Ring Rose and colleagues as well, how they talk about this very prevalent sexual double standard around um, sex and sexuality. So again, we need to move away from these traditional and misplaced conceptions of what a child should be and particularly what a girl um, should be. And that is, you know, innocence enshrined. Um, All of these then impact on how young people negotiate relationships. And as we noted earlier, consent is so important. Yet how young people understand consent and in line with that coercion or coercion is highly influenced by these gendered stereotypes and myths that are so dominant within society. Um, so really everything we've mentioned previously um, impacts on how young people understand consent, um, which can lead to a multitude of mis- a range of misunderstanding and misinterpretations. So really regulation has to go beyond the criminal justice system when you look at this wide range of issues. I think we're in agreement that the criminal law is necessary in this area, particularly for behaviours which are at the higher end of the spectrum, which might amount to more overt forms of offending and where there's a clear intention to cause harm. But to go back to what we said at the beginning, the law is very unclear here. And in some ways, some of the cultural confusion around the capacity of children and young people and different ages of consent around varying behaviours, which exist in society, have always been enshrined in law as well. But what about the particular limitations or problems with the criminal law in relation to sexual behaviour in particular and, and some of the disparities around consent, for example? Yes, Well, it's imperative that we recognise these limitations of the law, especially within this context that we're discussing harmful sexual behaviour and young people. And scholars, including Gillespie, have described how the law is disproportionate, that it fails to distinguish between positive and consensual experiences of sexual behaviour and more harmful and exploitative experiences of sexual behaviour. And it really all comes down to this issue of consent and whether consent was given. And again, tapping into that issue I discussed previously when looking at motive and intention and recognising that sometimes consent can be given and then it can be lost. And the law, as it it currently stands, um, isn't properly equipped to deal with these complex issues that um, we are dealing with when it comes to harmful sexual behaviour and young people. 
We also have, as I mentioned previously, the fact that young people think they have failed sexual agency at 16 when they don't. So the law fails to recognise then um, young people's sexual agency. And Gillespie talks about this really well um, in one of his articles when he looks at Article 8, which is the right to respect for private and family life, and Article 10, freedom of expression. But again, there's a real tension within that because obviously at the core, you want to ensure that a young person is safe um, and that they're protected from harm. But again, it's really important that that balance is looked at and that recognising a young person's sexual agency um, against that need to protect them um, is, is, is addressed and addressed well. Um, and really, it's so important that these limitations are recognised because a young person, as I mentioned previously, could wrongly receive a criminal conviction and the long-term consequences of that are extremely severe and we need to be using the law as a last resort for young people um, and not as an automatic response. I would absolutely agree with that as well. I think in other jurisdictions, such as Australia, as you know, there's been an overzealous approach to prosecution. And until very recently, where there's been a rollback, the US was the same. There's been an over-approach to prosecution in terms of criminalising teenagers who were sexting, for example, and very much a panic in that area, as we've said. So I think it's important to really highlight that, that the law is limited in this area, that even though a child or young person may technically infringe the law governing indecent images of children or, or the child pornography legislation, as some call it, by taking or sending or disseminating or producing an indecent image of themselves or someone else, that that's not appropriate in every case. And again, we're back to the contextual factors. So again, it comes down to if there are limitations of the law and this behaviour is becoming more prevalent, we really need to think hard and long and more constructively about developing more social responses along public health lines. I know this was something you drew out in your own PhD, Elizabeth. Have you any sense of what that type of educative social response would look like? Yes, I really think that what we need are comprehensive education programs. And the key word there is comprehensive. So what I mean by that is programs which challenge these polarised notions of masculinity and femininity, which challenge gender stereotypes and myths, which promote healthy interpersonal relationships, um, which encourage young people, especially during um, those adolescent years, um, to explore cumulative negotiation of consent, as Paul, as Paul describes it. So actively seeking consent. Um, so if you're unsure if consent is being given, actively seeking out that consent um, and looking at subtle cues, etc., to determine whether consent has been given or hasn't been given. It's about encouraging safe and responsible use of the internet. The internet isn't going away, so we need to equip our young people with the necessary tools to navigate the internet in a safe way. And within that, we need to educate our parents as well. Um, parents are a bit behind when it comes to the internet. They didn't grow up with the internet and young people are always a step ahead. So it's about educating the parents as well so that they feel comfortable um, when it comes to their young person going online and that they feel confident that they've put in place the proper safety, um, safety regulations so that their child doesn't come across inappropriate material. And it's about recognising privacy as well. If we are encouraging young people not to disclose personal or private information online, then parents also need to respect that. And that's a big issue at the minute with sharenting, that parents are maybe disclosing a lot of personal information about their children, uploading a lot of pictures um, and not recognising that need to protect that, their child's privacy. Um, so it's really important as well that privacy is something that we look at within these education programmes. 
we need education programs which reflect the lived experiences of young people and that includes LGBTQ plus people and I think that was something Anne-Marie as well that you that was in your book um, that LGBTQ plus young people feel quite excluded um, from current education programs because we have this very heteronormative um, ideal of what a family should be and what a relationship should be and it doesn't account for the complexity and diversity of families that currently exist and doesn't consider their plurality of sexuality. I think that's yeah very important to highlight that again. The LGBTQ plus, for example, we talked about a little about this at the beginning in terms of the cultural stereotypes along gender. It's very binary, male and female. We know that looking at surveys of programs in post-primary schools, for instance, that uh, that LGBTQ aspects are removed from the curriculum. Only I think the stat is 11% of school programs touch on that. So that's something that needs to be recognised. And as I've said, it has to be much broader. And you've picked this up as well. It has to be broader than sexual relationships. It has to be about privacy and consent, relation, healthy relationships, both on and offline. But I think while we both agree that that is a very important uh, issue for schools and for the policy agenda. We also need to recognise it, it's aspirational on one level because there are very real challenges with that. And one is, I think, in the Northern Ireland context, I think it's fair to say that there's a traditional culture of shame around sex and sexuality. And it's not something that's talked about openly in a public discourse because of religious history and a conservatism around that. That's something we need to get over and bring these debates out into the open. You've already recognised a big challenge is engaging children themselves. So if this type of behaviour has become more normalised, for example, how do you get children and young people to engage with behaviour they don't particularly regard as unwelcome or harmful if they see it as normal? Also, you've picked up on the engaging with parents, very important as well. That's done through, I think, schools, but also more widely in the media. And again, we need a consistency of message here on a number of levels. I think one is that organisations have to have more joined up thinking. Again, we talked at the start about the different definitions of peer abuse. There's no uniform agreed definition of child sexual exploitation. So that needs to be done, a consistency of message against across agencies. And that is then fed out into the community so parents are getting a good, clear information. Equally, you've mentioned the surety, and it's, 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 it's vital. We know there are cases in other jurisdictions where children have sued their parents for posting images on Facebook of them without their consent. And it seems to me completely counterintuitive if we as adults and parents or carers are trying to get our children to be more respectful of privacy and consent and control over their digital image if we're posting every two seconds on Twitter without people's consent. So I think there are hidden challenges there and all of that needs to be recognised. It's imperative we, we look beyond the law, but they're not to underestimate the difficulties here in terms of, of driving this forward at policy level. Yes, definitely. And I think really what it's all about is moving beyond a purely risk or harmful understanding of harmful sexual behaviour and recognising young people's sexual agency while also ensuring young people are safe and protected from harm and can make informed choices. And it's through these education programmes that they'll be able to do that. And also looking at the wider picture, which includes, um, for example, parents um, and ensuring that they have the right information as well to keep their children safe and to feel confident that their children can engage online. As we say, it's not going away. So it's really about making sure that everyone has the um, proper tools necessary to keep our young people safe while also recognising, as we've said, their, their agency, especially their sexual agency. Yeah, I completely agree with that as well. I think to, to leave it with one kind of soundbite or takeaway, what we're saying is the language of risk and harm will always have its place, but we need to balance concerns about risk and vulnerability with agency and children's rights on the other. Yes, definitely. 
thank you, Anne-Marie, for this conversation. We've covered quite a lot of ground there, and I think it was really important, the main issues that we talked about. Thank you for listening to LawPod. For any further information, please look at the show notes on the website.